Welcome to the American Reformer Podcast, promoting a vigorous Christian approach to the cultural challenges of our day and rooted in the rich tradition of Protestant social and political thought. Hosted by Josh Abitoy and Ben Dunson. Hello and welcome to the American Reformer Podcast. I'm Ben Dunson, the Editor-in-Chief of American Reformer, and this morning with me is Josh Abitoy, the Executive Director, and Tymon Klein, who is the Associate Editor of American Reformer. Uh, we are, the day after Independence Day, going to talk about patriotism and uh, Christians and Christianity. And uh, something that spurred this was a recent Christianity Today article um, Timon, could you um, could you tell us the, uh, the title of this article and, and kind of just tell us what it was about? Yeah, so the, the title was How to Have Patriotism Without Nationalism. Uh, subtitle, Christians Have Always Been Called to Love Place and Neighbor Over the Power of the State. It's by someone named Bonnie Christian okay. with a okay. K. I'm not familiar with her. So, okay, um, so... <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, already in the title, I heard Loving Place and Neighbor which to me would seem like a good reason to love your nation, right? But I guess that's not where she takes it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's not where she takes it. I mean, she the, the article I should say is largely sentimental, so we're not looking we're not going to find here tight logical theoretical kind of arguments. Um, it is short, so we can we can give her that. I don't know what the word count was, um, but it starts out with talking about how. You know, patriotism should be distinguished from nationalism. And as we think about our patriotism, um, we, it needs to be colored. You know, our July 4th celebrations need to be colored by the January 6th. Uh, she calls it sedition. Um, and we need to we need to think about, you know, the, the ugly side, I guess, of, of this, which she says is going to be nationalism. Um, and if we're really if we're really Christians, um, we're, of course, not going to act like that. But more importantly, she sets it up as, you know, small P patriotism doesn't care about, um, you know, state state power. That's what she's saying nationalism essentially is. And the people in J6 were just cared about, cared about state power. You're going to care about being kindness, compassionate, especially to, um, you know, the foreigner. So she's, she's inserting all sorts of xenophobia in there for the, the side she doesn't like. And, you know, these sort of, again, sentimental statements of you've got to keep your Christianity ahead of your love of country. Um, it's okay to love your fireworks and, and maybe celebrate some good things about America, which are liberal values, of course. Um, but remember, too, she has this great line at the end where she says we need to remember that Christians, you know, at the founding and the revolution, Christians killed other Christians. And this, of course, is not something to be celebrated um, even though you can be glad that America is ushered in liberal values uh, for everybody. So that's the best I can do is sort of the logical progression of this article. It's kind of so, so kind of a, a standard cosmopolitan um, globalist sort of perspective, I guess. Yeah, right. Okay, so there's there's uh, there's a lot going on there. Um, <laughs> I mean, let's just park on the. Um, Christianity Today is like evangelicalism's magazine, right? I mean, it was founded by Carl Henry. I mean, this was the outlet mm -hmm. for 
conservative Protestants who wanted to start reengaging with culture to a degree, but do so from a, like a, um, it's a Bible believing conservative evangelical angle. It's, it's really exceptional. I think, uh, to see Christianity today staking out a position that is so far outside the mainstream of what evangelicals actually think. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I actually, when I saw this article, I was sort of intrigued by, I don't know what prompted this, but I, I went in um, and pulled their uh, election data, you know, their giving data to see like sort of what, mm-hmm how their employees shake out. And in the, um, in the 2020 cycle, one out of scores of employees at Christianity today gave to anybody who was right of center. So overwhelmingly, uh, this is a magazine that's, that's run by Democrats. It's, it's just fascinating. I think to see the, the fact that this legacy institution is run by people who essentially have a hostile relationship to mainstream evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it certainly is. Um, it has been for a while. I think we'd all agree, but um, certainly since Russell Moore has taken over, we can note uh, a sort of shift or an emphasis in things, especially dealing with immigration and in our view of you know the foreigner and these things. Um, and it makes sense with Russell Moore's involvement with immigration, evangelical immigration table, is that what it's called? Mm-hmm. Um, and those sorts of initiatives um, that began, you know, around the, the time Trump was taking office. Um, and I do think that that really is probably the, the real focus of this, this article is, you know, people who are a little too rambunctious about their love of their country and have any, any inkling that their country is better than others and that they love it more for that reason are probably xenophobic and racist and probably, you know, have objectionable opinions about immigration. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, there's so many fun things you could go into, um, in, in, in just what you said. And, uh, just in general, um, I was wondering like with the, so she's really scared of, of anyone who's going to fall into what she would think is nationalism, I guess. Uh, does she ever, does she ever define, you said it was short, does she define nationalism? No, I mean, not in a, not in a serious okay. way, right? So she has a section where the, the bad patriotism, which is nationalism, frequently indulges in jingoism, pride, militarism, and idolatrous civil okay. religion. That's as close as you get. To so by definition, <laughs> nationalism nothing. is, is only things that are horrible. Um, yeah. Yes. Okay. Well, that's yeah. good. Um, well, hey, so how would you guys define nationalism? Maybe we could start with that. Well, I would. I, I think I noted this somewhere, and then and then also Nate Fisher tweeted out something to the this extent. I can't remember what he said, but I I remember recently reading Michael Lenz's book, the the Next American Nation, which is you know a bit dated. It's from the '90s, but it's worth reading. And early on in the book, he actually would would define the difference between patriotism and nationalism in like the opposite way that this, this author does. So he, he says patriotism, um, you know, which, which can be good, can be, can be bad. Both of these things, abuse doesn't negate use, but patriotism is really allegiance to the constitutional order, the specific forms of government and, and the defense of your, your country in that respect. 
nationalism would be would precede patriotism as the love for the people that make up the nation, which is which is the precondition for the constitutional order. So patriotism would actually be the thing for the for this author that should be more more scary. That's where the state power would would come into play that could be over overdone. Um, but of course, we know in, in rhetorically today, nationalism is scarier because of of fascism. You know, insert post World War II brain, um, and patriotism sounds you know more friendly and nice. Right. Um, but but Lind, I think Lind making that distinction, I think makes much more sense, um, even from the perspective of documents like Federalist Two. Yeah, right? I think that's it's a, a better way to view it. Josh, how, how would how would you define nationalism? I would say that nationalism is loyalty to the nation and the nation being construed in the classical sense of the, the people who make up um, a discrete grouping of, of people that would be called a nation. So it's, and it, it probably some of it is also love for place that comprises the nation, right? So love for the landscape, the, um, the people who live there, the, the culture and traditions and way of living, um, whereas patriotism, I think to, to Timon's point often carries with it, um, an aspect of loyalty to a particular state, um, which is possible to distinguish from the nation itself, right? A nation can exist over time and have a variety of different states. Um, and one could be loyal to a nation without being loyal to, you know, particular regimes that are over that nation. Right. So we wouldn't necessarily have to be loyal to uh, Joe Biden. We wouldn't have to see him as um, as the embodiment of of who we are as Americans in order to. Um, well, I guess on, on a certain scheme, maybe to be patriotic, it would be that wouldn't really seem to be the, the common use of patriotism um, in, in our country, because I I would describe myself as patriotic, but I, of course, am opposed to a lot that is is being done by mm -hmm. those in charge right now. Um, yeah, I, and I actually, I mean, I think there's a decent argument that these terms are basically synonyms. I mean, patriotism yeah. is derived from patris, like the father. Um, it, it's gratitude for one's right. patrimony for the inheritance that we've all received, which includes like a political inheritance. Um, mm -hmm. so, so yeah, I mean, just if you look at the word etymologically, it's actually sort of nationalistic. I mean, it is, it is tying into this mm -hmm. idea of, um, a particular inheritance that, you know, has something to do with lineal descent. Um, so, you know, it, it's sure in contemporary parlance, it's come to be viewed as a more um, like hygienic or sterile term that just means like, you know, adherence to, you know, the propositional nation that is America. But I, I think if you look at the word historically, uh, it's got, it, it itself carries these connotations of particular people in a particular place over time, sharing a history mm -hmm. and tradition. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. I, w I would agree with all, all that um, as well. I think they can use be used interchangeably, and I think that they're they're both fine fine terms. Um, it's only in the rhetorical trap that we find ourselves in that they are really that uh, distinct. And I, I would say back to the the definition question. You know, the the nation is sort of it's not just 
the the law. It's not just the nomos, right, or the the ways of doing things. It's also the the ethnos, and I know people get in trouble for saying that now, but that's the you know the particular people that are defined often geographically, as Josh was kind of bringing up. Um, there's an aspect of your ancestors there. You know where where are your grandparents buried. Um, it would be kind of a, a question where that's where your attachment is. Where have you your customs been developed? And all this is interactive, of course, because as, as you have a people, you know, we talk about our, our constitution, a people that's conditioned by a particular type of, of state that they've they've put over themselves, a particular type of type of form of government um, that in turn does, you know, condition those people and becomes part of their their national identity in a certain sense. The two are not are, are symbiotic, but they are distinct. Um, so, which is why I think you find the more patriotic people, or you know, maybe we call them nationalists, um, are much have much greater fealty, at least to an original understanding of their constitutional order, um, than you find in liberals that, that reject both of these these loves. Yeah, no, I I'm probably in the minority in thinking ethnos is too tainted, but. Um... Because no one, no, no one hears it the way you just said it probably today. <laughs> but um, I mean, every, everyone thinks that that means um, race. But um, yeah, I mean, a people. I mean, this maybe I can throw some Roger Scruton in there. Um, the the, mm-hmm. uh, the whole idea of the fact that you're you're born into a world that you didn't choose. You're born into a nation that you didn't choose, and you have you have obligations toward those people. Um, in that world that you're born into that you didn't even choose. Um, and um, I mean, I can see that as being uh, one way to define nationalism is you have, you have these responsibilities towards, um, towards that world you're, you're born into. I mean, that's, it seems to be a, a, a even though Scruton's not really a Christian, um, that's a kind of a Christian way of thinking about that is your neighbor, your actual neighbor is someone you didn't choose. You're born into this world you have obligations toward that person and your obligations toward that person are greater than your obligations toward someone in another nation. Um, precisely because, uh, that's, that's the, the people that God has caused you to be born into. Um, mm-hmm. I, f- I found that helpful in the past. Um, yeah. Yeah. Roger Scruton's a very good case for cultural Christianity, <laughs> right? As a sort of cultural mm-hmm. Anglican, we wouldn't have him without it. Um, and he was a proponent of it. Um, you know, I think he played the organ in his local parish his whole life or something like that. Um, but never, you know, as an evangelicals, we'd say we're, we're uncertain about where he stood, but um, in terms of, of, of true salvation. But anyway, I think, no, I think all that is, is extremely helpful. Um, and can, you know, at least with this sort of reciprocity of, of rights and duties, you know, is something liberals often leave off. Um, and they also have a not surprisingly low level, uh, low view of providence of your, you're just, you're in this place because it's where God's placed you. And then you have a certain order of loves that comes into, into play. Um, but of course, all that's precluded by a sort of propositional, uh, idea of your country, which Josh mentioned earlier, in which case your, your only real duty as a citizen of this nation is to, uh, to spread its, its gospel all over the world. Um, and mainly by inviting the world into uh, the nation. And as, as long as it's propositional, it's that they can at least feign fealty to those ideas and they're, and they're in, and the rest of it uh, is pretty irrelevant. Yeah, and to the extent, the, 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 the other aspect of the propositional nation thesis is that to the extent to which 
your own people uh, fail to live up to that proposition, your loyalty can actually shift to other people right. who adhere to the proposition more, you know, more faithfully. So, right. you know, if, um, you know, if you're an American and you feel like uh, our sacred democracy is, is under attack or something, um, you know, your loyalty is to that proposition first. And so you can, you know, you can easily pivot your political loyalties to some completely different nation. Um, and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, this is, uh, I mean, certainly if you look at, for example, the, you know, CEOs of fortune 500 companies and international corporations, I, th- I think you actually very much see this. You see that American elites have, no particular attachment to America. If our regime changed in certain ways, they would repatriate, you know, their corporate operations and their political loyalties to some other, you know, major modern economy without a lot of disruption. They they conceive of themselves as citizens of the world, not as citizens of a particular country. Now I, I hear I right yeah well no, so I so it's, it's interesting I I hear two things. Um, it, it kind of in my mind when, when we when we talk about propositional uh, nation, um, one is a kind of very contemporary understanding of of you know our democracy, that kind of language that you you see um, when you can have uh, some on the left who who would even say that our democracy must be defended against laws that are passed by majorities in America. So if a, if a state passes a law banning transgender surgery and the majority of the people in that state chose that law, then there would be those on the left that would say, our democracy is under threat. And that, that seems to be a certain kind of, uh, I guess, propositional understanding of America. But on the other hand, there's obviously... There's, there's the rule of law and there is the, the American legal inheritance and constitutional inheritance. And that's obviously propositional um, and uh, without suggesting that you can have just propositions without a people. Um, but the, so there seem to be two different ways you could understand something being propositional. One seems bad. One seems good to me. Um, I'm, I'm curious what you guys think about that. Yeah, I, I think... Um... So, so I think that even in the latter meaning, right, the, the idea that um, I, I think there's been in modern conservatism perhaps too much um, assumption that, that adopting the political proposition is like a sufficient condition to having a virtuous state. Um, and so, you know, like the – and this underlies a lot of the neoconservative hubris and making the world safe for democracy and seeking the imposition of democracy in in uh, like Middle Eastern states, right, where they promptly engage in democracy, and you know that results in uh, outcomes that a lot of people don't like, right? Um, when you give give a majority to vote in these places. Um, you know, you have to step back and say, oh, you know, really net, uh, it's better having a dictator often um, than having democratic will rule in, in many places. And, and so there's, um, you know, I, I think the, the, just the idea that 
the people at the American founding were uniquely virtuous. They were a particular people to which um, our constitution was tailored. So, you know, the constitution is not a, you know, universally perfect regime that would fit over every, every people group perfectly, but it was, it was excellent for our people as we were comprised at the founding. Um, we, you know, I think we want a better understanding of that. Um, you know, and, and obviously the, the, that's right. I mean, the, there are propositions in our written constitution and, um, you know, and, and I think it's, it's probably fair to say that relative to other nations, um, we've always, we've always been more open, I think, to the possibility of, of assimilation and, you know, have had an open way of life, um, perhaps similar to, you know, what Thucydides noticed about the Athenians and their openness. And, and so I think we, we always have been characterized by a higher degree of openness relative to, to other nations, but um, not enough appreciation for the limits of that. Right. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. I mean, I was just, of course, doing my, my civic duty yesterday and rereading the Declaration, um, which is the only thing from Thomas Jefferson I reread. Um, but, the, you know, I did, it did strike me that in the list of grievances, uh, he makes the point that, you know, the king, mainly parliament, but the king in parliament at least, is would not allow them to, to bring more people over to grow the country. Uh, which was an interesting point that, that they were limiting the immigration, mainly from from England, of course, at the time. Um, so that that's certainly a part of you know we had this this massive bit of land even before the Louisiana Purchase, um, and we were wanting to to fill it with with people to grow the you know grow the nation, and we were ob- obviously very open to that. But to Josh's point, um, this did not preclude uh, a prudent and political assessment of of how what what limits could be on that in terms of um, cultural and political stability and it of course um, the assumption that there would be assimilation to america to a certain way of life and a certain culture um, was, i think that was definitely a presumption all the way through the 20th century in many regards until after the the world wars um, and you see that in immigration commentary at the time um, on various european groups coming in so this wasn't particular to you know to non European groups, it was, they would say it about many groups, um, because they're concerned about order and mass immigration can just be destabilizing. You're not saying anything about the people necessarily, but just how much can be handled at once, just like changes in laws are, are destabilizing doesn't mean that they're, they're always bad to do. Um, so I think those considerations, that sort of balance um, is needed for, for conservatives to, to speak intelligently about um, these issues that are that are pressing, and even even this theoretical issue of what is nationalism and patriotism. Right, right. You've got to have a way to preserve a coherent nation. Um, I mean, I think I think that's been rejected by that that kind of cosmopolitan um, view, uh, the 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 kind of globalist perspective where boundaries don't really make sense, borders don't really make sense. Um, the, Unless they're Ukrainian borders, yeah, no, that's that's true. That's true. Um, <laughs> bo- borders and and um, well, this is this is one area where um, uh, I think uh, Christians actually need a much more radical separation of church and state um, on, on immigration because they the, the talk of 
um, the, that it's basically wrong for a nation to restrict immigration um, is is a very strange attempt at merging church and state, in my view, uh, because you're going straight hmm. to the Old Testament and picking out texts that have to do with sojourners and things like that, which to my mind don't appear to be relevant to national immigration policy. Uh, and those things should be kept much more separate. Um, you know, I, as a Christian would, um, would, would, um, uh, you know, would, would seek to, um, share the gospel with, with, uh, even someone who comes over the border illegally, what, you know, whatever. But, um, the, the fact that, that immigrants in the Old Testament, or not immigrants, that's not even the right word, <laughs> sojourners and things are, are, are called <laughs> to be um, treated a certain way. And then th- that they could sort of jump straight to what the state should do today. Um, I mean, isn't right. the state's responsibility to maintain the health of the nation? Um, I mean, it really right. seems as simple right. as that. Right. You say, I mean, your point, the people who would most likely make the sojourner argument um, without without examining you know the, the text even in that context what it meant I mean this is not granting those the sojourners citizenship or all the rights civil rights of, of uh, members of the, of the nation necessarily it's just saying to be to be kind to them which is which is perfectly legitimate um, but the people who would most likely cite that would froth at the uh, you know the theonomist for wanting to import other Old Testament civil standards. Um, but that one's perfectly fine. So it's kind of a pet issue. Um, but Ben, I don't know if you've touched on this before, but you know, you're, you're poised to do this. Well, the other argument I see jumping to the, the other Testament is like you're saying to sort of use standards, um, introduced by Paul to deal with the relations between Jews and Gentiles in the early church, um, being applied to to our immigration policy. Right. So, so explain that a little bit more. Um, well, just, um, you know, I think I even saw it on, on Twitter yesterday of, you know, if there's, if Paul is saying there's no Jew or Gentile, oh, right, right. those boundaries of hostility have been, uh, you know, broken down by the gospel and the expansion through the great commission. Therefore we should not distinguish him between um, you know, a foreign immigrant. And oh, right, right. I, which would destroy, I mean, like right. if you really took the implications of that all the, all the way to the end, which I think you'd be required to do, that would nullify the idea of, of nationhood period. I mean, there, there cannot be yeah. a nation, there cannot be borders if that's true. And, and you're right. It's, it's taking yeah. something that is true about gospel fellowship that I am a brother in Christ with, with my brothers in India, with my brothers in Cameroon, um, with, with my brothers in, in every country in the world. And we have an equality in Christ as brothers and sisters in Christ. And we have, uh, we have that, that fellowship, which transcends borders as the church. Um, and that's extremely important and that's vital. And there's no distinction between any, any believer, um, before God, but yeah, to, to take that spiritual reality and then to try to apply that to politics and to nationhood, again, I would just say they're not, they're not, they're not separating church and state in the way they should there. Um, the, the, the mandate of, of a state is to 
to do what's good for its citizens. Um, I don't know why, I don't know why that's so controversial. Um, I just, I, I can't really understand it unless like you said, the only lens that people can see that through is, is the bad examples like Nazi Germany. Um, and they, they just like, they can't conceive of a nation seeking to, to, um, do to benefit its people in any other way than that. I mean, I guess that's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, um, I mean, I do think it's very convenient proof texting that they engage in and it's disingenuous because you don't actually see, um, you know, an engagement with, with the sorts of arguments you were just making by them. It's, they're just proof texts that can be thrown around and they, they guilt trip, good Christians because we have fealty to scripture and are generally loving people. So you feel bad if, uh, when those are thrown at you, but, um, I think people need to be a little more resistant to it. And like you're saying, um, we're not talking institutional, uh, separation, uh, although, although maybe that too, but the separation in terms of the logic or understanding of the, the proper ends of church and state yeah, are distinct yeah, exactly. and do have different, different missions. The temporal mission, um, may have certain religious interests that coincide with the, the spiritual powers interests, um, but their their destinies are different um, and they are are differently situated. And a lot of policy is always going to be uh, there's a certain brutality to all policy because you're dealing with a, a fallen world. Um, and then there's also uh, always going to be a certain over over inclusiveness of policy. So when you if you talk about things like limiting immigration, by certain standards. I mean, there's going to be certain harsh realities about that, that, that are not fun to think about. Um, but at the end of the day, you're dealing with, with a very sort of chaotic, uh, world where you have to make those hard prudential decisions and judgment calls. And so it's, and it's kind of, um, it's very defeating, I think, to, to choose particular issues where those judgments can no longer be be made. It's a bit demoralizing to say we've we've lost any control over this to even consider the ramifications and its pure ideology driving the policy. Right. And it's very destructive ultimately because it, it, superficially it might seem to be the compassionate thing to have completely open borders. But the only reason that the only reason that so many people want to come to America is because things are better here than they are in the country that they're coming right. from. But the only reason that things are better in America is because we've run our country in a certain way in the past. And if, if you, if you simply allow, I mean, if, if the entire world comes to America and is dependent on American, um, you know, welfare and, and so on, if everyone comes in and doesn't come in and <laughs> become assimilated in every possible way and productive members of society, um, mm -hmm. then it won't actually be that place anymore. It's not possible. Um, it's not, it's just yeah. not possible. And I mean, which, which is like the analogy yeah. of the, the, the household. I mean, this is so obvious to people when you talk mm -hmm. about your own house, if everyone in my town right. came to my house and said, um, we're moving in and we have a right to eat your food and sleep in your beds and use your air conditioning, all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, it would take five minutes to destroy my house and it would make, right. it would take five minutes to destroy 
everything about it and um, even destroy my possibility of, of choosing to be hospitable to, to mm-hmm. others. Because I right now can choose to be hospitable to, to others, not to everyone, because it's just not possible. Mm-hmm. But I can choose to be hospitable to right. some precisely because I can maintain the integrity of my house and I can make sure that things are running well in my, in my own household. Um, but but yeah. when you apply that to the nation, you say, well, the, the nation has this mandate to make sure that things are going well in the nation and, and, um, and it can't, it can't fulfill that mandate if it eliminates borders. You know, I don't, I don't know why that would be so yeah. controversial. Um, the, yeah. we, we can't be, maybe you could put it this way. We can't even be compassionate to anyone if we try to be compassionate to everyone. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, again, with the, with the sort of hospitality or household uh, analogy, which is, which is like very traditional to analogize between family life and, and then civic or social life. It, It just makes sense. There's obviously distinctions, but it's a good analogy especially if the family is the sort of the bedrock of, of the latter. But in your, in your household, if you invited in, you know, some people that are down on their luck and need somewhere to stay and you're doing this out of uh, Christian virtue, you would expect um, a certain sort of assimilation to the way you do things. I mean, one, it would be very difficult to um, house those people long-term if they refuse to even, you know, speak your right. language. How are you supposed to communicate? And then if they refuse to, maybe partially because of the communication barrier, but then also just different values. Maybe they don't pitch in in sort of the household duties. Uh, They don't do things the same way. They don't have the same standard of uh, whatever, order and cleanliness just in the house. And and that would be a difficult barrier. And at some point you'd have to, and and maybe on top of that, let's say they are non-Christians, which you're you're willing to deal with because you're trying to evangelize them. But let's say they start leading your, your children astray and they're a bad influence in this way and they bring in drugs or something. I don't know. But you at some point as a father would have to say, okay, I, I want to be loving and compassionate to these people. But at, to do so, I would have to sacrifice the my own household, not just its order, but maybe even the, the morals and souls of my children. And that's my first order duty. I just can't do this anymore. It's unmanageable. Yeah. And so I think that that's a very you know good way to think about it. And at some point you have to say, who's, who's God put me in charge of first, you know, where's my, um, this is why I'm held to higher duty just as pastors are. And just as, as statesmen are magistrates are, um, because they're, they're in charge of these things and it falls on, on them. And so you would, with that same kind of logic, obviously at, at scale with immigration, it's things can get more complicated, but if, if we could just have that basic outlook and then move forward, um, I, I think it would be clarifying and, and, and much more sensible in the way we talk about this issue. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, Josh mentioned this, um, but I, I think American history has proved that, I mean, America has been more open to bringing people in and assimilating them than probably most countries in the history of the world. Mm-hmm. And in the past, I, I would say that that can't work at a sort of a mass scale where you just let everyone in who right. wants to be there. But America has been pretty good at bringing a pretty diverse crowd in. But in the past, there was, th- there was that assumption that if you're coming, you're going to become mm-hmm. an American. You know, think about all of the, the people yeah. in our country that have, that have 
foreign last names that we don't even realize anymore. Um, you know, whether it's Dutch right. or Polish or Italian or Irish or German um, or, or whatever, there's so many names like that. But the the reason for that is because they came in and they became Americans. I mean, I I, I still remember when I when I was in a, a very heavily Dutch um, settled community in Canada for a while. And I, it dawned on me that I had all of these friends that had Dutch last names in high school, and I didn't even realize it mm-hmm. because they've been Americans for generations. Um, and so, you know, there, there was that expectation for most of America's history that if you're allowed into the country, if you're allowed to become a citizen, you're going to become an American and, and that's going to be your loyalty and that's going to be who you are. Um that's that has changed in in some of the immigration debates now to where I guess that's considered to be evil or or maybe even racist. I don't know to to have this expectation that that people have certain responsibilities laid on them if they're going to be allowed to become citizens. Yeah, and it probably the what you just said there remind me of this. Probably the reason people froth against it the most is, is the, you know, under the new definition, racist connotations of this, because if you say there has to be assimilation, you have to think about what is the baseline standard that's being assimilated to. And I was, I was reminded by Kevin Slack wrote a great piece of the Federalist uh, yesterday there. It came out yesterday uh, for July 4th, talking about the declaration and this gets back to sort of proposition nation ideas too. So he's talking about the you know the high mindedness of the declaration, right? Of these these different values, is, I hate that virtues is such a better word, but the, these different principles. And it, his point is that this uh, he has this 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 one sentence. He says more than mere abstraction, the declaration expressed a rich tradition, a people of similar ethnicity, language, religion, and republican governance and manners. And then he says the citizenry was 98% Protestant, 90% British, and 60% English. And so the point is not that no one can join in with that if they're not part of the 60% or 90% or 98%, um, but it is coming from a particular point, a particular place. You know, it's not a view from right. nowhere. And in fact, these values that are being discussed in the Declaration as a justification for uh, revolt against you know, an intolerable governance government from their perspective. Um, again, the nation going against the, the state, um, its basis or, or where these things have been developed can't be ignored. And so when that is the baseline of, of assimilation in some way, you don't have to, uh, you know, none of us, even, even those of us that are Protestant with British heritage, so it, we can't exactly return to and assimilate into an 18th century version of America, right. but we can, you know, generally assimilate to these, this, uh, this culture. I mean, Russell Kirk has that great book on the, the British culture of yeah, America that's a good one. and basically says, this is, you know, this is what it is and this is what you should be assimilating to. And so far as it, it is ascertainable at this point being non native British, right? <laughs> you know, we're not British anymore, but that's the, the baseline background. And so there's gotta be some standard. Um, and I think because just as a matter of fact, that is what the standard is, then that, that of course is offensive to, um, you know, our, our new leftist sort of ideologues that, that hate everything about that. Um, and so when you're calling for assimilation and not, 
unfettered, you know, unstandardized immigration, you're in your sort of pushing back against that and then saying, well, even the people that do come in, we should, uh, they need to, to join in with us as a people. And this is what the people um, is at a basic yeah. level that that's offensive. And I think that's really like where the rubber meets the road is when you talk this way about it, it's like, well, who's, who's America? And you're like, well, the, uh, we're talking about the America that, that actually exists. And so that's, and then you've got to assert the dominance of one particular culture. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's because, uh, we're, we're, we're butting up against absolute pluralism, you know, this perspective that every, every uh, perspective is, is, um, is equally valid. Well, they don't really believe that, but um, that's the claim anyway, that, that, <laughs> that every, every perspective, at least that they like is equally, equally valid. And so there's this, this complete um, um, openness to all, all perspectives and if that's the case, yeah, then then um, the idea of assimilation is is offensive to them, rather than seeing that America does have this precious inheritance um, that goes back in so many ways to to the legal tradition of of England, to the the constitutional tradition of of England uh, that that doesn't come from nowhere, and that that precious cultural inheritance you know it's it's more than propositional but i guess it's not it's not anti-proposition i mean it's you know there are certain propositional yeah. truths that are foundational to who we were and who we expected to be and 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 there should be that expectation that people will will um will assimilate to that no i guess yeah. i guess to, to oh no go ahead yeah. Well, no, I, th I think that um, that's right, that it's not less than propositional in a certain way. All I would just do the, the qualification is that there are particularized propositions. So there's certainly ideas, you know, that, that we're talking about and as part of the American heritage and in the Declaration and these things. But they're coming from, you know, a, a, a long history. I mean, especially if you use the common law kind of approach, I mean, it's centuries old. And it's you only understand the way law works in this way because you're conditioned by that tradition. And that's not the case on the continent in yeah. the same way. Not that there's not interaction. It's just a different way of doing things. You could make the case for and again, there's there's much influence from Roman and canon law and yeah. common law. But there's a, a distinct way in the Anglo-American way of doing law that is, um, you know, that we cherish and that we, we all um think is, uh, I mean, the best in a certain way. We yeah. prefer it. That's just our proclivities because we're conditioned by it. And so if you come here, you're expected to also appreciate that inheritance, right? There's a lot of ideas in there, but it's also a lived kind of tradition that's been carried on. Um, and so the it's particularized propositions. They um, That's part of, I think, the point Slack is is making and it's not uh it's not all free floating they they've landed somewhere and this is why you'd see you know at the founding especially during the uh the debates leading up to the issuance of the declaration the, the continental congresses um you know most of the talk is about they'll they'll say the phrase natural rights but people natural rights as englishmen yeah. meaning the natural rights certainly they objectively objectively exist natural law is out there but at some point it has to land in a particular place and be applied. And these are the ways the natural rights have manifested in the English context. So there's nothing potentially unjust in another society that quarters troops in a certain way. But this is not the expectation of 
the the Englishman, and then you tie it back to a right of of you know property, self-defense, and these other higher natural rights. But this is how it's been expressed, and this is our expectation now. Same with like the right to bear arms. Self-defense is definitely a natural right, but in the British context, it, it looked a certain way, and that was the expectation. Um, so again, they're particularized sort of propositions or ideas, and I think that's what we need to be more comfortable talking yeah, about. The, the, the language of the um, the English Bill of Rights um, on on bearing arms, uh, that only Protestants are allowed yeah. to uh, bear arms, that, that might not go over quite as well today. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I mean, this, the, all of this is, uh, I mean, we, we were talking about patriotism and, and nationalism. Um, it's something you said about how there, there are differences in, in various nations that, that don't rise to the level of a natural right or natural law. Um, there's nothing necessarily in, you know, striking against the fabric of the universe in allowing troops to be quartered um, in, in private homes, but like you said, that that um, um, that, that's our inheritance. I mean, one thing that I I find so great about, I guess you could call it nationalism. I mean, uh, is that you recognize the good in your nation, but you can also see the good in other nations. You know, it's 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 not it's not as if there is in every point something universal that means that if you do things one yeah. way, this other nation that does things yes. differently is, is evil. Um, that kind of right. universalizing right. of democracy, democratic values that we see in the contemporary period can't really accept that. It can't accept that mm -hmm. um, they might do things differently in Iraq <laughs> and uh, there might actually be mm -hmm. some things they do that are okay, that are different. Uh, maybe, yeah. maybe, yeah. maybe they can't actually have a stable government that uh, that looks just like ours, and that's okay. Stable government is better than mimicking American government, maybe for them. Um, right. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, all all of this is great. Um, you yeah. know, we've been talking about patriotism, nationalism. I don't know about you, but studying all of this over the last three or four years, like more intensely studying America's English traditions of, of law and governance, uh, studying classical Protestant thought on, on government, it's made me more patriotic than I ever was before, um, not okay. less patriotic. I, I've really come to appreciate that precious heritage that America inherited at its founding and that it, um, that it furthered in so many ways. And I, I feel like a much yeah. more patriotic person than I even used to be. Yeah, amen. I mean, the like you were saying, when you realize the, um, you know, these <laughs> our opponents are all about diversity, right? But they're actually imperialistic in their uh, wanting to foist uh, everything on other countries that we do. And I actually think the, um, you know, countries doing things differently in insofar as you know the differences aren't right, moral yeah. versus amoral. Um, or immoral. The I actually think it's interesting, and so did the founders. I mean, you see, you see Adams in his defense of the Constitution, surveying all kinds of European and ancient nations. Um, they obviously are coming up with a constitutional order that fits the English people we talked about that they have in the colonies, which are already have a distinct culture as colonials, right? They've been there for generations, already kind of different. Um, than the, the the home country, but they're looking at you know the Swiss cantons or whatever, all these other ways of doing governance and, and pulling things and saying, well, that's interesting, that's that might be workable or that's not, or um, so they're very 
you know, appreciative of that as, mm. as well. And, um, and I think it's kind of cool to see, you know, how other traditions, traditions shake out, but like you're saying, it also recognizing that everything isn't universal makes me appreciative of in, in Providence, what I, what I happen to have. And if for no re- other reason, at the end of the day, you can say, I prefer this just because it's yeah. mine. Just, you know, there's, there's going to be other families out there. You could look at and be like, wow, they are, are so high achieving they have such a great inheritance and heritage and that's really, really cool. But I don't, I don't love them because it's not mine, even though it may be objectively better, yeah. even. Um, but it's not, I, I can't have this conjure up the same love. And so I think like you're saying, studying, studying the founding and traditional Protestant thought and seeing how it's influenced the, the founding itself. So our, our religious inheritance with our, our national inheritance in, in many ways going together, they're coinciding. It makes you, um, stop worrying and just love being a patriot, <laughs> you know, like you're, you don't have to nitpick at a, on a universalistic standard. You can just say, well, this is quirky, but this is just how we do it. And it's kind of, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe that's a good place to, uh, to bring it to a close since we're, uh, doing it the day after July 4th. Um, do you have any yeah. last thoughts before we close? No, no, I think that's all good, good discussion. And, um, you know, we've run lots of things, probably recently at American Reformer dealing with these kinds of issues. So we, um, you know, set people just check out the website, I guess, to see some of the most recent ones. I'm blanking on the titles of all them, but we've had several kind of pieces recently. If you remember particular ones. Well, yeah, I mean, just, just good stuff in, in, in general. I think, um, I think um, people sometimes would be surprised that there's, there's a bit more diversity uh, in, in our articles than, <laughs> than some would make out. Yeah. Um, uh, and, um, and, and we really do want to tackle, tackle these issues. Um, we've also got this podcast, which you can, you can listen to on Apple, on Podbean, on Spotify. Um, and you can check us out at AmericanReformer.org. Uh, we're on Twitter, AmRef, uh, or no, it's AmReformer on Twitter and then on, on Facebook as well. So you can check us out there. We appreciate you listening and uh, we appreciate you reading. We hope to have many more uh, good discussions for you in the future. Until next time, we'll see you later. Thank you for listening to the American Reformer podcast. Make sure to visit us online at AmericanReformer.org. That's AmericanReformer.org. You can also follow us on Facebook and on Twitter at AMReformer.org.